All right, the Christmas season is upon us. Praise the Lord. I love Christmas. Uh, like many of you, we have um, some family traditions, I'm sure, that you guys are getting excited about those, having to adjust some in light of, of COVID. Uh, one of ours is uh, Christmas lights. We love to get everybody gets in their, their, their Christmas pajamas. I do not have Christmas pajamas. The kids get in their Christmas pajamas. And uh, we get in the car and we kind of scope out beforehand, what are, where are some places around greater Boston where the lights are just killer? You know, where they've gone all out, right? And we, we drive around, check out the lights, and, and then we, the kids get hot chocolate. It's just a fun tradition that we've, we've started. But I wonder if you've noticed, I noticed this in October, it seemed like Christmas lights were going up a lot sooner this year. Anybody notice that? Yeah, and I, it was kind of like just a hunch as I was driving around. I'm like, man, it's early, and I'm like an early Christmas guy, but I'm like, this is real early, like early October, you know? Well, sure enough, that's, that's true. The Washington Post published an article this week entitled, It's Dark Outside, Families Are Putting Up Christmas Lights Early to Offset the Gloom. We've heard this before, right? 2020, what a year. And so what's happening? Families are saying, yeah, I normally, I wait a little bit, but you know what? We just need some joy. We just need some light. So we're going to get the lights out earlier. One, one person, uh, listen to what the article says about Julie Zimmer. In a typical year, her family would turn on their Christmas lights after Thanksgiving. And some of you guys, like, that's the rule. If you do it before Thanksgiving, something's wrong with you. I disagree, but anyways... But in the wake of a contentious presidential election, in the middle of a pandemic that appears to be ballooning by the day, the Zimmer household in Crofton, Maryland, started hanging their Christmas lights earlier than ever, a week before Halloween. And she said, quote, they bring happiness. They're bright on a dark night. You hear that there, right? It's more than just about lights. It's this grasping, this desire of hope in the midst of darkness. COVID-19, the presidential election. Think about the, the many canceled events that are normally a part of our annual rhythms. That coupled with the, the isolation. And the article goes on to say, amidst all this, families are digging into their storage containers earlier than ever to follow through on, part, on the one part of the holidays they can control, turning on the Christmas lights. So there's this desperation for light, this grasping at hope, and also this, this sense of, I, I don't have control over anything, but I can turn some lights on. Isn't that interesting? Lights do something for us, right? There's, there's something meaningful. It brings joy and purpose. Well, friends, this morning, as we look at Hebrews 1, which Marie just read into chapter 2, verse 1, the author of Hebrews is, in a, in a sense, he's turning the lights on for us in the midst of darkness. And he's turning the lights on and revealing a much more radiant light than Christmas lights, though those are wonderful. He's, he's turning on the radiant light of God's Son. And here's what's interesting about Hebrews. We'll only be in this one passage in Hebrews for this series, but the audience of Hebrews is very significant as we consider our own lives and in this own year that we've experienced. Because the audience of Hebrews was a group of persecuted Jewish Christians. They were living day to day wondering what's going to happen next. Am I going to be arrested for, for following Jesus? Am I going to be 
in prison? Am I going to lose my life for this? And what's understandable is those Hebrew Christians, those Jewish Christians, were also struggling with this sense of where is God in the midst of all this? Where is God's voice in the midst of this darkness? Has the light gone out? Is God silent in my struggles? And so the point of Hebrews is to really sound one note over and over and over again. It's the point of our passage this morning, and it's the point of the the entire book. And it's simply this, that Jesus, the Son of God, shines brighter. Jesus is better. Jesus is enough. That is the goal of Hebrews, and that's the purpose of chapter 1 as well, is to just turn on the radiant light of Christ for us. And you also see the goal at the end of the passage that Marie just read, chapter 2, verse 1. What does the author of Hebrews say? He says, therefore, in light of who Jesus is, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. He knows our tendency to be discouraged by darkness and to drift away from Christ. He wants to draw us back to the light. So the goal this morning is that we would pay closer attention to the radiant light of God's Son, so that we don't drift away. And as we walk through this passage, which is really just like drinking through a fire hose of Christology, theology of Jesus, we're going to see three major things. We're going to see first the Word of God's Son, Then we're going to see, second, the work of God's Son. And then third and finally, we're going to see the worth of God's Son. The word of God's Son, the work of God's Son, and the worth of God's Son. And we're going to spend most of our time in those first three verses here. So number one, the word of God's Son. How does the author of Hebrews begin? He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. So no introduction, no hello, no grace to you, just just starts right away with here is what God has done. God speaks. You catch that? It's important. We've seen this in Genesis 1, haven't we? God is a God who speaks. Now there's two sort of common views on this in our world that we've all encountered, and they're kind of ends of the spectrum on whether or not God speaks. And one end of the spectrum is the this, this sort of skeptical end. God doesn't speak. You, you mean to tell me God actually reveals himself to people? No, there's no way. If there is a God, he's just way out there doing his thing, and he lets us do our thing. God doesn't speak. Right, that's the skeptic's understanding. I'm sure you've believe, either believed that before, right, or you've encountered that before with friends and family, or maybe that's, you're struggling with that right now. But then there's the other end of the spectrum, that says, well, yes, of course God speaks, and God speaks in everything, right? God speaks to me through the trees. God speaks to me when I'm listening to music. I hear the voice of God, and really it doesn't matter. God speaks through Christianity. He speaks through Buddhism. It doesn't matter if you're a a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Jedi or whatever. God speaks. God's voice is everywhere. He speaks in everything. And here, do you notice what the author of Hebrews does? He says, just so you know, both of those are wrong. To the skeptic, it's God is not silent. He's spoken. But also, he hasn't just spoken in any way. He has spoken in a very particular way. And here's how he's done it. And here's the way he breaks it down in verse 1 and 2. He says God's word in the past. Here's how God spoke. And now, in the present, here's how God has spoken. So in the past, we see that God has spoken in many ways, many times, 
to our fathers by the prophets. Friends, we can even go back before that, right? We've been in Genesis 1. What happens in the first pages of Scripture? God creates, but he creates by speaking, and this creation tells us about who God is. The psalmist personifies creation in Psalm 19.1. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. What's he saying? He's saying the creation of God tells us that there is a creator. It speaks in that sense. So we are meant to look at creation and see that there is a creator. God has spoken in his creation. This is what theologians would call general revelation. God has generally revealed himself in creation. And general revelation is good and it is important and it's necessary. But it's not enough for us to know exactly who this God is and how we can know him. It's good, but not enough. It it would be like watching a movie with a mute button on and no captions. You could get a a general idea for what's happening in the story. You could read facial expressions and, and, and put scenes together. But if you don't have the dialogue, if you don't have the verbal communication, you're not gonna fully understand the picture. So God has done more than just create and see, look at my creation. He, he has spoken in a very specific way. And the author of Hebrews tells us, here's how it used to happen. Here's how it happened in the old covenant through the prophets. So you think about your Bible. You think about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, right, all of those guys. The, the greatest of which was Moses. And he, did, he spoke to them in many different ways. Listen to what Numbers 12 says about prophecy. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. So we have visions and dreams of God revealing himself to people. We have Moses, the greatest prophet, who spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. God gave him the the word. And all of these things are meant to show us that God desires to communicate with his people. But friends, even this, though good, was pointing to something greater from the very beginning. In fact, Moses, the greatest prophet, in Deuteronomy 18, 18, we read, God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. So what is God saying? All of these prophets are pointing to a greater revelation of God. Who is that revelation? Well, that's what the author of Hebrews tells us in verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This is how God spoke then, but all of that was pointing to something greater. In these last days, we have the ultimate and final speech of God in Jesus Christ. He is the voice of God. So this time of year and through series like this, we celebrate Advent. We're anticipating, we're looking back with a sense of anticipation of the first coming of Christ. We're also preparing our hearts for the second coming as well. 
But this first coming was called the incarnation. What happened there? Friends, God, the author, listen to how different this is. God wrote himself into the story. The prophets were great. They were wonderful. They, they were the, the means God used to speak to his people. But God said, I want more than that. I want to speak directly to my people. And I am going to come down. That's what happens in the incarnation. The author writes himself into the story. So we read in John 1, 14. And the word, it's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the uniqueness of Christianity, right? What does every other religion say? There is no Advent story. Because every other religion says, here is God over here, and here am I right here. What do I need to do to get to this God? Yet in Christianity, God says, no, I have always spoken to my people, long ago and many times in many ways, here's how I spoke. But the ultimate final voice that I give is my son, Jesus. You could see how this would be a comfort to suffering Christians, right? They're wondering, is God silent? I think this is why the author of Hebrews does not give any pleasantries at the beginning of his letter. He just starts in verse 1. I'm going to give you Jesus, 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 Jesus. Because I want you to see what the darkness around you has started to stomp out. You're saying God is God silent. And I want to remind you, no, 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 no. God has always had a voice. And the ultimate voice of God is Jesus Christ. And he belongs to you. So friends, what, what does this mean for us? Okay, If Jesus is the word of God to us, if the, if the word of, of God's son is Jesus himself, how does that work? And how do we know the, the word? Because it's not like Jesus has an apartment you know, off of Moody Street and we can go later and have an appointment with, appointment with him and hear what he has to say. Well, friends, Jesus is actually of, of much help here. He points to the word of God, the scriptures, which reveal us, reveal to us Jesus himself. So, so here's how this works. You can hear the voice of God today. The word of God that we hold in our hands is the revelation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if you want to hear the voice of God, this is how you do it. We should treat our Bibles the way Jesus treated his Bible. Think of after the resurrection, the, the seven-mile road to Emmaus. Jesus is walking with these disciples. They don't know it's him yet. And he, here's how he reveals himself to him. He could just snap his fingers and do some, some cool Jesus thing. But here's what he does. He takes the scriptures. He doesn't have it a hard copy like I do. He's got it in his mind. And Luke 24, 7 says, And beginning with Moses and the prophets... He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus wanted to give his disciples Jesus. So what did he do? He went to the word. Friends, we should treat our Bibles that way. If we want to hear the voice of God in Jesus Christ, we should be people of the word. Listen to what Donald, Donald McCullough says. He says, when the gospel is heard or read, Christ walks among his people. It's the miracle of Christmas all over again. Christ clothed himself in humanity, spurning the language of angels to speak with the tongues of mortals. What a gift it is we have that we can communicate with Jesus today in his word. 
He is spoken to us by his Son. So that's the word of God's Son. Then second, we see the work of God's Son. We see this in the remainder of verses 2 to 3. Now, there is so much here. I'm going to point out five things, and we're only going to be able to scratch the surface. In fact, one thing you can do this week, there's five days in your work week. If you were to take one of these phrases each day this week and prayerfully meditate on it, your soul would be so nourished by this. Because here's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying Jesus is like a diamond. And a diamond has multi, multiple different facets. So I'm, I'm holding it up to the light. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing. And I'm sort of turning it. And I'm going to show you five different facets of this beautiful diamond. There's many more facets. But here's what, I wanna, here's what I want you to get. And so he shows you here's the work of Christ. Look at verse 2, the second part of verse 2. He says that Jesus is the heir of all things. We see that Jesus inherits. God's son inherits something. That makes sense for us, right? It also helps us understand this phrase, son of God. Jesus is God's only son, inherits, just like only sons do. Now, this phrase, son of God, is is important. It's caused a lot of confusion, especially from outside of Christianity. For example, Islam would say, see, you're saying this Jesus is a created being. He cannot be God. But this doesn't mean, to say that Jesus is the son of God, doesn't mean that he's created, Now again, this does seem confusing because if you look down in verse 5, when the author of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, referring to Jesus. So so what, what does all this mean? Well, first, we have to be very clear. Jesus is the eternal son of God, meaning he's always been the son of God in relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, okay? This is where church history can be very helpful for us. There is an old uh, creed called the Nicene Creed. Listen to what it says. This was written in 8325. The only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, begotten, not made. There's a distinction. Of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. Okay, so you're telling me Jesus was begotten but not made, and he's always been the Son. He's eternally begotten. What in the world does that mean? Well, C.S. Lewis is very helpful here. Listen to this, these illustrations he gives. He says, when you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. But when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird, for example, makes a nest. So there's a distinction there. Jesus is not created as the Son, as I was born as a Son. He is the eternal Son, and as the Son, He inherits. Now what does He inherit? Everything. This is what Colossians 1.16 says. All things were created For him, or a good translation of that is toward him, meaning everything belongs to him and everything is bent toward the glory of Jesus. And friends, if the goal of all things is the glory of Jesus, that includes you and me. Our worship and our glory, the Son of God inherits, but also he goes on to say the Son of God creates, still in verse 2, through whom Also, he created the world. And he doesn't just mean the world, the earth, but he means all of creation here, the universe. 
I'm no scientist, but I can use the internet. And this week, I was reflecting on this. Let's think about this. Our galaxy is over 100,000 light years across, which is about 600 trillion miles. Stephen Hawking, the, the late theoretical physicist, wrote this. He said, we know now that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself containing some 100,000 million stars. Translation, the universe is big beyond your imagination. Beyond anything you and I can comprehend. And the author of Hebrews says, Jesus, the Son of God, created all of it. John 1.3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Which, by the way, shows that Jesus is not created because he made all things that were made. Therefore, he cannot be made. Friends, this is meant to make us feel small. It's meant for, we're meant to see the vastness of creation because when we see that, we realize Jesus the Son of God created this. We're meant to see his greatness and his glory. So he inherits, he creates. He goes on to say, verse 3, he radiates. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And this, by the way, there's a poetic structure in verses 1 through 4. And this is the center point of those verses. The radiance of the glory of God. Now, now, there's a difference between reflection and radiance, isn't there? Uh, the moon has light, but the moon's light is re reflecting the light from the sun. The sun itself radiates. Do you notice what the author of Hebrews is saying here? He's saying that Jesus is not just a mirror. The sun is not just a mirror that reflects other light. The radiance of God is in Jesus Christ. He's not like the moon. He's like the sun. The source of glory is in him, and he is the exact imprint of his nature. Translation, he is God. The Council of Nicaea, again, says Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Does that change the way you, you think about the nativity a little bit? Baby Jesus in the manger? There were glimpses of this, of course, at the first advent, Heavens opening up, angels worshiping him. We also see this in, in the Gospels as well. The transfiguration, for example, where Jesus goes up on the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah appear there. The voice of the Father comes down from the heaven, and Mark, Mark 9, 3 says that Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. What, were the, what was that? It was a glimpse of the radiant heavenly glory of God the Son. Or think of the Apostle Paul as he's on the road to Damascus, an enemy of Christ in his church, going to persecute Christians, and Jesus shows up, and what happens to Paul? He's knocked off his horse, and he is blinded by the radiant light of Jesus Christ. Friends, these are glimpses of who Jesus is and what he does. He is the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, if you want to see the glory of God, you look at Jesus Christ. You look to Jesus Christ. But he goes on. Not only does he inherit and create and radiate, he also sustains. Still in verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
There's, there's this uh, idea, system of thinking about God called deism. Uh, many of our founding fathers were deists, and here, here's kind of a summary of what they believe. They would use the illustration of a clockmaker. God is like this divine clockmaker, meaning he's created everything. Yes, there is a God, but he's created everything like a, a, a clock or a watch, and he's wound it up and he's let it go, and now he's completely and totally distant from his creation. He's not involved in the nitty-gritty stuff of our everyday lives. Well, friends, is that what the author of Hebrews says here? Absolutely not. He says that Jesus, the Son of God, is at this moment upholding the entire universe with the word of his power. That same universe that he spoke into existence, he is sustaining and carrying it and supporting it as we speak at this moment. Colossians 1.17 puts it this way. In him, Jesus the Son, all things hold together. Now listen to how Charles Spurgeon applies this to you and I. He says, if Christ upholds all things, he can uphold me. If the word of his power upholds the earth and heaven, surely that same word can uphold you, poor trembling heart, if you will trust in him. There need be no fear about that matter. Come and prove it for yourself. May his blessed spirit enable you to do so even now. Friends, what comfort it brings to the Christian to know that at this moment, the chaos in your home, the doubt about what's going to happen in the next year with your job, the relational struggles, whatever it is, in all of that, Jesus, he didn't turn his back. He didn't take an off day. He is upholding and sustaining the universe with the word of his power. That's meant to comfort our souls and draw us to come trust in him. And then lastly, in verse 3, he saves. So he inherits, he creates, he radiates, he sustains, he saves. And by the way, there's really two things here. I just thought six was a lot, so I jammed two under one. Look at verse three. After making purification for sins, that's what he did, he then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So now we get a glimpse of Jesus' earthly ministry, right? This is where Advent comes in. That son of God who inherits all things, who radiates the glory of God, who created the universe, sustains it by the word of his power, this glorious Christ came down to us. Not only does he desire to speak to his people, he desires to be with his people. So the sun came down. But there's a problem. We are impure. That's the language there at the end of verse 3. It's Old Testament sacrificial language. We are not pure before a holy God. So how can we, an impure being that God has created, how can we be reconciled, be brought back into relationship with the Son of God? Well, that's why the radiant Son became one of us. He took on the form of a servant. He took on being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Philippians 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came and lived for us and died in our place and rose and defeated sin and death so that we would be purified and we could be brought back into the presence of God. And after he died, he, he ascended to heaven and he sat down. 
What were Jesus' final words on the cross? It is finished. That's what that sitting down is on the throne. I've completed, completed the work of redemption, and now I sit victoriously on the throne. And this is the love of Christ for sinners like you and me. Listen to what Dane Ortland says about this. He says, Jesus seating at God's right hand is associated with his priestly atoning work. The priest was the bridge between God and humanity. He reconnected heaven and earth. Jesus did this supremely through his climactic and final sacrifice of himself, purifying his people once and for all, cleansing them of their sin. Now listen to this. It was the joyous anticipation of seeing his people made invincibly clean that sent him through his arrest, death, burial, and resurrection. When we today partake of that atoning work, coming to Christ for forgiveness, communing with him despite our sinfulness, we are laying hold of Christ's own deepest longing and joy. See, friends, when we think about the the joy of Advent, oftentimes we think about how how God brings us joy as we think about Jesus. But do you hear what Dana is saying here, what the scripture is saying? Advent's not just about you having joy. It's about the joy of God because he loves you so much, he went through these great lengths to save you. Jesus delights. He takes joy in purifying sinners like you and me. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That should draw us to come to him and seek forgiveness. He saves us. This glorious Christ condescended to save you and me. And then in victory, he went right back up to the throne. And now he's reigning at this moment. This is why we can't sanitize or sentimentalize Christmas, right? We, I love the nativity scene. We've got a bunch of them in our house. It's, it's glorious, right? But we have to remember that the backdrop behind that manger is a bloody cross. Because Christ came to die and save us. He accomplished that work. And now he is seated on the throne victoriously. He did it because he loves us. What what a truth. So this is the work of Christ. And then third and finally we see the worth of God's son. He's worthy of worship. We've seen that already. It's a theme all the way through these first three verses, but he really hammers it home here. So we've seen the word of God's son, the work of God's son, and then lastly, the worth of God's son. Verse four, he says, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he had inherited is more excellent than theirs. So this introduces something uh, unique, right? Why is all of a sudden he's talking about angels? Why is this? Well, uh, the original audience, again, was Jewish Christians, and there were groups of Jewish Christians who really struggled with this misunderstanding of angels and elevating them too highly to the point of angel worship. For example, the Essenes were a group of, of, Jewish, uh, of Jews who, who uh, elevated the archangel Michael to the point of saying he is going to reign in the future kingdom. Well, there's, there's really no grounds for that. But there were these incredible creatures, and they were tempted to worship them. Now, we don't really have time. It's not, not the purpose of this passage to get into angelology today, though it is a, a worthy study. But what he's doing here is he's bringing these rich truths in verses 1 through 3 to application to something they're struggling, struggling with. 
So he's saying, you're tempted to worship these angels, but let me just remind you that Jesus is better. Jesus is the one who is, is the object of your worship. So my guess is, I mean, you can tell me later, my guess is in the past week, none of you have struggled with angel worship. Maybe, right? We can talk about that later. But here's what has happened. You and I have been and are constantly tempted to underestimate Jesus in our lives, right? And so it's not angels for us, but here's what it may be. Here's, Here's a way to find this out. Think about this question. How many times do you think if I just had blank, then everything would be better, right? If I just had peace in my home, everything would be better. If I just had a li- just a little more money, I don't need to be like Bill Gates or anything, but if I just had this, I would be better. If this year, it's funny how we talk about 2020, as if like on January 1, everything is going to be okay, right? If I could just get through 2020, then it would be better. Well, friends, what are you saying? You're saying, I don't have enough. I need something else. The logic is therefore that Jesus is not enough something else is better so what is that for you ask yourself the question is the son of god enough for me is he enough and here's the way the author of hebrews shows this to his original audience by the way this is a sermon hebrews is a sermon so he opens his old testament And he says, I'm going to show you seven passages from the Old Testament that show you that Jesus is better than the angels. And we we, we get again another lesson here from how the author of Hebrews is writing that tells us of the significance of the word of God in our lives. How does he show these people that he's preaching and writing to the superiority of Christ? He uses the scriptures. And we don't have time to dig deep into each one of these, but just, let's just consider them briefly for a moment and turn them into the form of questions. In verse 5, he's essentially asking the questions, friends, are the angels the unique son of God? He quotes Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 to show that Jesus is the unique son of God. So if the angels are not the unique son of God, then you shouldn't be worshiping them. You should be worshiping Jesus. In verses 6 and 7, are the angels the object of Jesus' worship? No, no, it's the other way around. He quotes Psalm 97 to show that Jesus is the object of worship. Verses 8 and 9, are the angels rulers of the kingdom? No, Psalm 45 says, your throne, O God, speaking to Jesus, is forever. Verses 10 and 11, did the angels lay the foundations of the earth and heavens? No, Psalm 102, Jesus did that. And then lastly, in verses 13 and 14, do the angels rule victoriously on the throne? Nope, Psalm 110, Jesus is the victorious ruler. So friends, how does Jesus measure up on the weight scale of these angels you worship? You see what he's doing here? He's showing them that Jesus is better. Friends, you and I have to do the same thing with the ways we're tempted to underestimate Jesus. Think of one of those old-fashioned weight scales. Right, where you put something on one side, you put something on the other. I know I'm not explaining this well, but you know, and you're trying to see which one is heavier. Put Jesus on one side and put all those what if I had blanks on the other. Jesus wins every time. Jesus wins every time. 
Nothing compares with Jesus, the Son of God. And here's the point the author of Hebrews is trying to make, make that you and I need to see. Not only does nothing compare to him, he is yours in the gospel. He belongs to you. This radiant Christ is your king, your savior, your sustainer, and he cares for you. So then, as we tie all of this together, what, how does the author of Hebrews apply this directly? Verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, if you study the Bible at all, that's a, that's a good trigger to say, what happened before? If you see therefore, you see what it's there for. So he's saying, in light of everything I've just said about the greatness of Jesus, here's what I want you to do. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. And this is more than just hearing. Notice that he doesn't say just hear. These were people who heard the word all the time. He's talking about fixing our minds on Christ. Bending our wills toward Christ, placing our affections upon Jesus, centering our entire lives upon him. Because he knows, just like you and I do, that the radiant light of Christ is so easily dimmed in our lives. Whether it's by a pandemic, whether it's by an election, whether it's by what's going on at home, whether it's by that sin that we are clinging to. So he's saying, friends, he doesn't say pay close attention, he says pay closer attention. And he doesn't say, I think you might should consider this, he says we must do this, our souls depend on it. So friends, how, how has the light of Christ dimmed in your life? And how are you going to pay more attention to the radiant glory of God's Son? Friends, Christmas lights are wonderful. They're wonderful. They do bring joy in a sense, right? But they'll be packed up and put away when Christmas is over. So where, where are you placing your hope? As the author of Hebrews says later in chapter 12, verse 2, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Pay attention to the radiant Creator. He's not distant he has spoken and he has come to rescue sinners. And he is victorious and he's enough for you and me. There's a man named Robert Murray McShane. He was a, a Scottish pastor who experienced a lot of suffering in his life. He died of typhus at the age of 29. But he had a, an incredible, I would, I would dare say supernatural vision of Christ from a young age. He just understood and wrote beautifully about what it means to turn from our sorrows and the darkness of our sins and behold Jesus. And listen to this counsel as we close from Robert Murray McShane. He says, for every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Live near to Jesus and all things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal realities. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hidden in the deep recesses of the ocean caves. Likewise, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again. You will never come to the bottom of these depths. Let's pray together.